Hi, and welcome to Brett. In Paul's letter to the Ephesians, he sets out five vocational gifts for the building up of the church in the kingdom of God. Evangelist, pastor, prophet, teacher, and apostle. It's our conviction that every single one of us is called into one or more of these. They're not personalities, but our personality undoubtedly plays a part. What they are is the call of God on your life. Now Jesus is, of course, the perfect combination of all five. And so it makes sense that having worked out our particular call, we look to and learn from Jesus in order to grow into maturity in our particular one. So for the next five weeks, we'll be looking at how Jesus is an example to us of the perfect evangelist, apostle, teacher, pastor, and prophet. Hello, welcome back. Hi. Thank you for waving. Uh, yeah, it's very good to see you. Uh, my name's Ed. For those of you who don't know me, as Hannah was saying, I am I'm married to Hannah, uh, and we lead this church together. Any problems, see her. Uh, and she's disappeared. Anyway, it's great to have you with us. Um, I hope you had a nice uh, Christmas and things like that. Did you get all the presents you wanted? I got this. <laughs> Why are you laughing? <laughs> I've graduated to... Um, Banana Republic. <laughs> I don't know what that means, but the fact that you're all laughing means it's bad. Uh, anyway, it's good to have you with us. Um, and uh, we are starting a series, which we're kind of jumping straight into it um, uh, for the next five weeks on calling and identity and um, who we are. And really, this is actually a continuation of sort of where we left off after our weekend away um, as a church uh, back in November, something like that, October, and then we sort of um, carried on a little bit. Uh, it's really about who you are, what you're called to. As you will know, uh, part of the core of the identity of this church is that everyone gets to play. No one has to, but everyone gets to. Because the Christian faith is not actually about professionals doing their thing up at the front and us kind of sitting and listening and singing and going, oh, that was nice, and then going away and then coming back for our re-up the next week. Uh, the gospel of Jesus actually infects every single area of our lives. It's like a virus, a good virus, changing each um, little element of who we are. Jesus comes to start a revolution in both our character and in our calling. He wants to speak to us about who we are and what we can become, and he wants to speak to us about who, what we're gifted to do and how we can actually do it. Not just for his and his kingdom's sake, although that's obvious, but also for ours, because we know, don't we, we are happy when we're doing the thing that we were made to do, and we are unhappy if we don't know what that thing is. Um, Eric Little, who uh, was a British sprinter in the 20s and 30s, uh, who later became a missionary to China, uh, was actually competed at the Olympic Games in 1924. And uh, he said, God made me fast, and I feel his pleasure when I run. And that's what we are looking for, to find out what sort of shape and calling and gifting we have so that we might enjoy God's pleasure doing the things that he's created us to do. And it's not just good for us, it's also good for the whole world, isn't it? Imagine um, how wonderful the world would be if, for example, all of those who were gifted 
to teach. Those who have the ability to inspire and educate, those who really want, uh, find it easy to get people to listen to them, those who people are trying to um, get to speak so that they can hear more from them, those people who are able to get through to people, into their big heads, and uh, fill them with ideas and things, uh, concepts for life. Imagine if all of those people spoke to the people of God about the ethics of God's kingdom, about what to do with our enemies, about how to use our money, about how to stand up to and defeat prejudice and racism, how to be filled with God's spirit. Imagine if all the teachers actually did that, of how to worship God, how, for instance, we should treat romantic relationships. I know you all want to go to that course. I really want to go. I've been married to Hannah for 17 years. Nearly, nearly 17 years. I, the thing is, once you get to about 13 to 19, I think they all kind of blend into one. Anyway, for 17 years. She knows a lot about relationships. I highly recommend listening to her. But imagine if all of the teachers did that. What a beautiful place. How extraordinary people would be. Now, in Paul's letters to the Ephesians, he sets out five vocational gifts for the building up of the church and the kingdom of God. They are evangelist, pastor, prophet, teacher, and apostle. And as I've said before, it's my conviction that every single one of us is called into one or more of these vocational giftings, usually one. They are not personalities, but our personality undoubtedly plays a part in the kind of shape we are. What they are, though, is the call of God on your life. Now, Jesus is, of course, the perfect combination of all five. He is the exemplary evangelist, apostle, teacher, pastor, and prophet. And so it makes sense that having worked out what our particular call is, we look to and learn from Jesus as our example in order to grow into maturity, to become more and more of who we are so that we might be happier people and we might have more of an impact on the world. So that's what we're doing. For the next five weeks, we will be looking at how Jesus is an example to us of the perfect five-fold ministry. And so beginning today, it's Jesus the evangelist. Are you primarily an evangelist? Is this your shape and calling? Evangelists tend to be, if not more comfortable, then certainly very comfortable with people who are outside the church as much as those who are on the inside. They can easily navigate spaces outside Christian circles. They particularly have a love for those who don't believe. They enjoy nothing more than talking to people about Jesus. I know, they're very strange. But they also have a canny knack of actually being able to get through to people. I've said this before, but partly because of what I do and partly because this is me, I love doing this. When I go to parties, people come and find me out and talk to me about Jesus. Now, I should go, I talk about Jesus all the time, please leave me alone, but instead I go, yes, I can't wait, let me tell you everything I know. And I bore them. But actually, non-Christians often find evangelists very compelling. Evangelists are not judgmental. They have a high tolerance for the brokenness of people. They fully embrace grace and they know it very well. They tend to be people who find church quite difficult. 
especially if that church seems not interested at all in people on the outside. They don't always have all the answers, interestingly, but they do really love Jesus. Now, the Greek word um, evangelion is where we get uh, the word evangelism from, and it literally means good news. It's actually translated as gospel in the New Testament, good news. So, an evangelist is someone, and I know this is obvious, who brings good news. They are not primarily teaching. They are not primarily prophesying. They are primarily announcing, because that's what you do to news, you announce it. And the news they announce is always good. It is Jesus here to save the whole universe. So, if, for instance, you tell someone who doesn't yet believe that they are going to burn in the fiery fires of hell, are you evangelizing? No, you're not. Because it's bad news. (laughs) I think we can all agree that is bad news. So that is not evangelism, for lots of reasons, including this one. Don't do that. If you teach someone who does not yet believe about Christian sexual ethics, that is also not evangelizing, because it's teaching. And just as an aside, I think it's decidedly questionable whether we as Christians ever have any right or indeed gain any benefit whatsoever from teaching people who don't yet believe what we believe about how people should live their lives. So should we just stop it? After all, don't we need to teach ourselves? We've got quite a look at you. You need to teach yourselves. Your lives are a mess. So why don't we spend our time with ourselves, sort our own house in order, and then we can worry about anyone else. And even then, let's not do it, shall we? So to evangelize is to announce something wonderful. And it's to announce the good news of Jesus. So what I want to do this morning is consider a couple of times Jesus does exactly that. He announces himself to two particular people. The first reading is uh, John 3, 1 to 15, and Maggie is going to come and read it at short notice. So a huge round of applause for Maggie. Is this working? Oh, there we go. <clears throat> also, if anyone sees the little hello badge, I lost it. <laughs> um, for those who take notes, again, this is John 3, 1 through 15. Now there was a Pharisee, a man named Nicodemus, who was a member of the Jewish ruling council. He came to Jesus at night and said, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher who has come from God. For no one could perform the signs you are doing if God were not with him. Jesus replied, Very truly, I tell you, no one can see the kingdom of God unless they are born again. How can someone be born when they are old? Nicodemus asked. Surely they cannot enter a second time into their mother's womb to be born. Jesus answered, Very truly, I tell you, no one can enter the kingdom of God unless they are born of water and the spirit. Flesh gives birth to flesh, but the spirit gives birth to spirit. You should not be surprised at my saying, you must be born again. The wind blows wherever it pleases. 
You hear its sound, but you cannot tell where it comes from or where it is going. So it is with everyone born of the Spirit. How can this be? Nicodemus asked. You are Israel's teacher, said Jesus, and do you not understand these things? Very truly, I tell you, we speak of what we know and we testify to what we have seen, but still you people do not accept our testimony. I have spoken to you of earthly things and you do not believe. How then will you believe if I speak of heavenly things? No one has ever gone into heaven except the one who came from heaven, the Son of Man. Just as Moses lifted up the snake in the wilderness, so the Son of Man must be lifted up, that everyone who believes may have eternal life in him. Thank you, Maggie. Uh, So in a recent U.S. survey, 70% of people would rather not have a born-again Christian as their neighbor. 70%. The reason for this is that for our culture, born again means something very different to them than it does um, to Jesus and what he means by it. At best for us, it means someone who's reached the bottom, someone who's had this sort of cathartic experience of their life really kind of the, the bottom falling out of it, and then suddenly a second chance, something completely new. But at worst, and most certainly, this is what the 70% of Americans who think it would be better not to live next to a born-again Christian have in mind. It means people who are extremely tight and moral and have this structure that is unmoving. It is Ned Flanders. No one wants to live next to Ned Flanders. People who need and have answers for everything, who are unbending and black and white, who are religious and ruled by the rules. I googled born-again Christian, just out of interest. Uh, and one of the first results was someone's post on Yahoo. I don't know why they were using Yahoo, but they were. Um, and it was entitled, I've lost my brother to born-again Christianity. It said, he keeps trying to get me into church by making me feel guilty by constantly quoting Bible lines. His whole personality has changed since he started with the church. He is now very distant from his family. It's like we never existed. All he does now is talk about Jesus and the wrongs of the world, e.g. smoking and drinking and premarital sex, whereas six months ago he was a fun person to go out with. Now he is boring. (laughs) So, born-again Christian, somewhat problematic. But this is precisely not the meaning that Jesus has here. Because the thing is, Nicodemus is the exact opposite of these sorts of people. He is not a person who has hit rock bottom. And he is not a person desperate to find tight, unbending moral codes to live by. Verse 3 says that he's a Pharisee and a member of the Jewish ruling council, which means he was old and he was rich and he was learned. Verse 10, Jesus says to him, you are Israel's teacher. So what we're talking about is Ivy League education, successful, high social status, powerful, and moneyed. So he is in no way spiritually seeking. He doesn't need to. He hasn't had a midlife crisis. He's not suddenly, suddenly wondering, I wonder what the meaning of life is. The bottom has not fallen out of his world. He has everything he could possibly need. And he goes to Jesus at night in secret. He's not desperate. He is calculated. 
He says this, verse 2, we know that you are a teacher who has come from God. Not I know, but we know. He isn't talking for himself here. He's talking on behalf of a whole group of people. In general, the Pharisees were pretty antagonistic towards Jesus, but Nicodemus clearly represents a sort of faction who are intrigued. As he says, no one can perform the things that you perform if God were not with him. So therefore, what this is, is not Nicodemus on some sort of spiritual quest, trying to work things out. This is Nicodemus doing some backroom politics. This is deal-breaking in the middle of the night. Could we work together, do you think? Could you, you know, give us some of what you've got? We think that, you know, we could probably teach you a few things. You could probably teach us a few things. Similarly, it's not as if Nicodemus is someone in need of moral structure either. He is a Pharisee. Pharisees had rules for everything. He is as structured as anyone could possibly be. He really does not need any more moral structuring. So in Nicodemus, Jesus picks someone who doesn't smoke, who doesn't drink, who doesn't sleep around. The Pharisees has rules for all sorts of things. And he says to this man, let me tell you the answer to the question that you're not even asking. You've got to be born again. Because what Jesus is actually saying is this. Everyone, every single one of you has to be born again. Those who are broken beyond recognition, whose lives have fallen apart, but also those who are strict and ordered and successful and nothing is wrong with them at all. Why? Well, I think what he's doing is taking away Nicodemus's excuses, his defense mechanisms. He's taking away the idea that I don't really need that. Christianity, great for you if it works, but I prefer other things. I tried it, I didn't like it, but you know, you go your way. Or I'm not really that type of Christian, you know, the Christian who sort of takes it seriously and, you know, actually believes the stuff. I'm sort of the Christian who quite likes the Christmas presents. What Jesus is saying is there isn't a type of Christian. He's saying it's either with me or it isn't, and every single one needs to be born again. Because for Jesus, this isn't some sort of optional extra. This is the thing. This is crucial. He uses various different pictures throughout the Gospels to illustrate what it means to have him as Lord, to, to come under his lordship, to believe in him, to trust in him, to enter eternal life, those sorts of things. Why does he use this picture here? Well, I think because for Nicodemus, this gets right to the heart of things. Because this picture is radical. This picture is a revolution. As Nicodemus rightly points out, how on earth can a grown man enter his mother's womb again? Surely you don't mean that. Of course, I don't mean that, you idiot. It's radical. It's why this picture has always appealed to outsiders, the idea of being born again, to those who have failed or are in trouble. Because when you have cocked everything up in your life, isn't it wonderful to know the extraordinary grace of Jesus, which says you can have another chance. It can all start again. You can be born again. Everything can start afresh right here, right now. But what Jesus is saying is that everyone has to go through this process.
Because what it leads to, and this is where it gets really interesting, is not just a radical new birth, but a radical new life. Everything changes. Do you know, I, I, I'm always a bit hesitant about pointing people out from the congregation, uh, and yet I do it regularly. <laughs> uh, so maybe I'm not that hesitant. But you know Joe, where's Joe? Cello Joe. Do you know who Joe is? Joe is a worshipper of Jesus. He's just so free to worship Jesus. That comes from a radical new life. That comes from being one thing and then being another thing and going, yes, Jesus. When, before I was a Christian, I was an atheist and I would sit at the back of church going, oh, I'm not sure about this, but something's drawing me. But what I always did was say to myself, I'm never singing those silly songs. Those songs, <laughs> they're so bad. I'm never singing those songs. I would say that to myself. And then I met Jesus. And then I had this powerful experience of his love and his actual, it felt like I was a completely new person and I could not stop myself. I was up at the front, hands up, singing the songs. I still love the songs because that is the transformation that Jesus is after. Completely new, completely radical. This is not reformation. We are not reforming ourselves. Reformation is doing all the things your mother told you to do. Read your Bible more, pray more, then you will be good. Jesus is talking about transformation. Being one thing and then something completely new. And the reason he does this is because he refuses to be the moral teacher that Nicodemus and many of us want him to be. He refuses to be put in that box. Just see how quite aggressive he is. I'm paraphrasing here, but he basically runs roughshod over Nicodemus. Nicodemus says, oh, you're from God. And Jesus says, I'm from God. I'm more from God than you could possibly imagine. I was born in heaven. Don't tell me I'm from God. And then he goes, but you're a great moral teacher. Teacher? Why do you call me good? Why do you call me teacher? I haven't come to teach you. Don't think I have come to teach you. I have come to revolution you. I have come to completely change you. Jesus says, if you treat me like a teacher who basically teaches you how to save your own life, you will never be saved. This is really the fallacy of the American ideal, and I can say this as a British person. <laughs> Just tell me what to do and I'll do it. Tell me how to go to college, and I will do everything I need to go do to get to college. Tell me how to get rich, and I will do it. Tell me how to have a good marriage, and I will do it. Tell me how to be a good Christian, Jesus, and I will do it. Just tell me, and I will do it. Jesus says, I'm not a teacher. I've come to birth new life. So you need to treat me, says Jesus, as a savior. Babies don't birth themselves. Mothers give birth to babies, and it causes them trauma and anguish and pain. Trust me, I have seen it three times. It causes the fathers so much trauma <laughs> and anguish and pain. But this is actually what Jesus does. The illusion at the end here in verse 14, is about Jesus' death being lifted up on the cross. 
and about his resurrection being lifted up from the grave. What Jesus is saying is, worship me as the God who's defeated all your enemies, who's defeated all sin and sickness, all death. Worship me and I will revolutionize your life. Place your life in my hands and I will give you new birth. Which is true for you, for me, for all your friends and all my friends. Everyone gets a whole new glorious life completely for free because of Jesus, which is why it is good news. Good. So, let's move on. Jesus the Evangelist, take two. This is from the following chapter, John chapter 4, verse 1 to something or other, and Ballora is going to read it. Round of applause for Ballora. long, so bear with me. Um, This is John 4, 1 through 26. Now Jesus learned that the Pharisees had heard that he was gaining and baptizing more disciples than John, although in fact it was not Jesus who baptized but his disciples. So he left Judea and went back once more to Galilee. Now he had to go through Samaria, and he came to a town in Samaria called Sychar near the plot of land Jacob had given to his son Joseph. Jacob's well was there, and Jesus, tired as he was from the journey, sat down by the well. It was about noon. When a Samaritan woman came to draw water, Jesus said to her, Will you give me a drink? His disciples had gone into the town to buy food. The Samaritan woman said to him, You are a Jew, and I am a Samaritan woman. How can you ask me for a drink? For Jews do not associate with Samaritans. Jesus answered her, If you knew the gift of God and who it is that asks you for a drink, you would have asked him, and he would have given you living water. Sir, the woman said, you have nothing to draw with, and the well is deep. Where can you get this living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob, who gave us the well and drank from it himself, as also did his sons and his livestock? Jesus answered, everyone who drinks this water will be thirsty again, but whoever drinks the water I give them will never thirst. Indeed, the water I give them will become in them a spring of water welling up to eternal life. The woman said to him, Sir, give me this water so I wouldn't get thirsty and I have to keep coming here to draw water. He told her, Go, call your husband and come back. I have no husband, she replied. Jesus said to her, You are right when you say you have no husband. The fact is you had five husbands and the man you have now is not your husband. What you have just said is quite true. Sir, the woman said, I can see that you are a prophet. Our ancestors worshipped on this mountain, but you Jews claim that the place where we must worship is in Jerusalem. Woman, Jesus replied, believe me, a time is coming when you will worship the Father neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem. You Samaritans worship what you do not know. We worship what we do know, for salvation is from the Jews. Yet a time is coming and has now come when the true worshipers will worship the Father in the spirit and in truth, for they are the kind of worshipers your Father seeks. God is the spirit, and his worshipers must worship in the spirit and in truth. The woman said, I know that the Messiah called Christ is coming. When he comes, he will explain everything to us. Then Jesus declared, I, the one speaking to you, am he. (laughs) 
So I chose um, two interactions. Thank you very much, Ballora. Uh, because I want, to see, I want you to see that Jesus never has the same conversation twice. Because every single person is obviously different. Where Nicodemus engages Jesus, here Jesus engages the woman. Where Nicodemus is proud and Jesus meets that pride by telling him he needs to become like a spiritual baby before his God. The woman is desperate and Jesus tells her with deep love that he can satisfy all her deepest longings. Jesus, as it turns out, never uses a tract or a set of evangelistic scripts. Can you imagine? Jesus, guys, there's two ways to live, and here's a little diagram. Now, God will obviously use anything, but I think people are too important to Jesus for him to treat them as anything other than individuals who are unique and precious in his sight. So he speaks to people's hearts, to their uniqueness, to their experiences, to their hurts, to their wrong-headedness and their desires. Which means, consider this, we can trust him. We can trust him with our friends. We can trust him to speak to them, to give them what they need, because he knows them better than even they know themselves, and certainly better than you know them. So let's consider the woman in detail. So Samaritans and Jews didn't really mix. Samaritans were seen as both racially and religiously impure. This was sort of um, came to a height in their history when the Samaritans built a second temple, a temple that they said was the true temple um, uh, outside of Jerusalem on Mount Gerizim, which uh, the woman references here. Uh, and so basically, if you were a pious Jew, you'd have nothing to do with them. It's the sixth hour, which means six hours after um, sunrise, 12 o'clock in the afternoon. It's the heat of the day. Now, usually women, as I'm sure you all know, if you've heard this passage preached about before, uh, would come together in the cool of the day to draw water, but this woman comes alone in the heat of the day, and we can speculate about why that is, but given that she's sleeping with someone who's not her husband, the inference being he's someone else's husband, I imagine that it's fair to say that she has been shunned by the other women in the village. They want nothing to do with her, and she wants nothing to do with them because she is a pariah. Now, to touch the water jar of a male Samaritan would be instant defilement for a pious Jewish person like Jesus. To touch and to drink from the water jar of a female Samaritan was completely unheard of, and yet this is effectively what Jesus is asking her to do. It shows his great generosity and love, that she is far more important than any of these rules. No wonder her surprise. It's never, ever, ever a mistake to be too kind. The truth is, and you will know this, people have so many preconceived ideas about church and Christians and how they'll be seen as dirty if they come in through the doors or they'll be rejected or they'll be not welcome. And many of these experiences are born from bitter personal experience. Uh, when we first moved here, we did these sort of gatherings before we launched the church. Uh, and one of these um, we were doing, and we, tried, we, we knew about four people in the whole of Los Angeles. Uh, but we'd do these gatherings, and people would turn up out of nowhere. 
And one time, this guy turned up, a um, very good-looking guy, extremely attractive man. Uh, he turned up, and he brought about 20 people with him. But we didn't know who they were. They just turned up. And during worship at this gathering, this guy leant over to me and said, I am the worst sinner in this room, probably in this city. And I thought, this city? Seriously? <laughs> but then he proceeded to tell me everything all the drugs and all the orgies and all the self-hatred that was very much a present reality in his life. And I said, you disgust me. No. <laughs> I did not say that. I, <laughs> I said, um, well, Jesus sees everything, but nothing stops him from wanting to be close to you. And then he started tearing up. And then he came back every week, week after week after week, until he, he moved to the other side of the country during COVID. He said he'd been in churches all his life. Nowhere had he felt safe enough to let Jesus come close to him. But this was the first time, and he loved it. He actually had his birthday at church one year, his birthday party. He brought 50 people to church for his birthday party. So weird, but it was great. And I convinced him, I said to him, I think we should do an alpha course at your house for all your friends. And he wasn't totally keen on this, <laughs> but I sort of forced him to. And he, he invited uh, his 30 closest uh, orgy drug friends uh, to his house, but he wasn't um, quite bold enough to tell them what it was. Uh, in fact, he told them what it wasn't. He told them it was a sound bath. And then I turned up. So all these guys were expecting a sound bath, and I said, so I want to tell you about Jesus. <laughs> but it was the best alpha I've ever run. It was, it was, um, it was extraordinary, because these people, who, who, many of whom had been really, really hurt by church, they were so hungry. They were so hungry for there might be something more. And we had the best conversations, desperate that perhaps there was a meaning to life. Perhaps that Jesus was real. Perhaps all their pain in the church could actually be dealt with. And then there's um, a friend of mine who's at this church, and we were talking, and she was, she's very worried about some people in her family because they have also been very hurt by the church. Um, but they have kind of gone on a deep, very angry dive into um, uh, all the wrongs politically um, of the sort of established conservative church, many of which I agree with, but she's, um, she's worried because they're so angry. And I've been thinking a lot about this, and I've been praying a lot about this, because she doesn't, doesn't know what to do with them. And I feel like the answer is, um, well, we should probably just uh, love them back to Jesus, and then he can deal with all the anger and all the pain. Jesus disarms this woman with kindness, but he doesn't leave it at that. What he's seen in her is a thirst, a deep-seated thirst, something that is there for something more. And Jesus knows that he can and he wants to meet it. The water I give them, he says, will become in them a spring of water welling up to eternal life. 
aren't people in this city really, really thirsty? Isn't it why they will try absolutely anything? I often joke about um, being the leader of this cult, but this would be a great place to start a cult, as many have tried. Because people are desperate, aren't they? Jesus knows this woman is thirsty. He just needs her to see the reality of what this thirst is doing to her. So when the woman asks her, where do you get this water and, what, and can I have some? Jesus' response sounds like a non sequitur, like he's completely changing the subject. He says, um, go get your husband and bring, her, bring him here. And she's going, no, I want the water. Give me the water, give me the water. Wouldn't we go, hey, I've got the water, I've got the water. Instead, he goes, go get your husband. But it's not a non sequitur at all. He's actually honing in, homing in on the real problem. The water that he is promising is intrinsically linked for her to her relationships with men. I have no husband, she says. And Jesus says, yeah, you're right. I mean, strictly speaking, that's true. But it's not the whole truth, is it? You have five, or you've had five, and the one you're with is not your husband. Do you see what he's doing? He's showing her what she's desperate for. The water of life, firstly. And secondly, he's showing her where she's been looking and not finding it and causing pain to herself, to other people. So much so that she is now ostracized from the whole community. What every single person in this universe is searching for is the spirit of life. The spirit of God that runs so deep, our souls are once and for all fully satisfied by it. Only Jesus has it. But it's serious because searching for it where it cannot be found leaves people in all sorts of trouble. And it's this seriousness, which is why Jesus has little time for her questions. She sort of deflects and goes, uh, what about Samaritans? What about Jews? What about worshipping here? What about worshipping there? And Jesus does answer those questions, but he's not really interested in those answers. And in my experience, people often have questions. What about health? What about suffering? What about sexuality? What about all of these things? And at Bread, we never want to shy away from any of those. It's why we run Alpha, to give people the context in which to ask these questions, because these questions are very important. I don't know any of the answers, but you know. But in my experience, this is always a way, actually, of deflecting things. Because our greatest need is not an intellectual one. It's a spiritual, soulful one at our deep core. You can have all the answers, but do you really think that's going to satisfy? So Jesus says, my spirit will well up in your core to eternal life. It will meet all of your needs. It's what Jesus goes for, and it changes the woman forever. The stories both conclude in the same place. Verse 25, the woman said, I know that the Messiah called the Christ is coming. When he comes, he will explain everything to us. Jesus declared, I, I am. I am the one speaking to you. I am here. It's me. To Nicodemus, he ends with, 
Just as Moses lifted up the snake in the wilderness, so the Son of Man, a way of talking about himself. So I must be lifted up, so that everyone who believes me may have eternal life. They end in the same place because Jesus is evangelizing and evangelism is good news and evangelism is announcing Jesus. It's all we're doing. So when we speak of evangelism, what we're really saying is come and see. Come and see something that is amazing. That's all we're doing. It's very simple. Just come and see. In fact, it's precisely what happens with the Samaritan woman. As we go on in the story, which we didn't read, it says, verse 29, Having received good news, she passes it on. Come, see a man who has told me everything I ever did. Could this be the Messiah? So they came out of the town and made their way towards him. What I love about this is she's not even completely sure. Could it be? I don't know. I think so. He told me everything. Should we go and see? Who can't do that? And verse 39, many of the Samaritans from that town believed in him because of the woman's testimony. He told me everything I did. So when the Samaritans came to him, they urged him to stay with them. He stayed two days, and because of his words, many more became believers. So to end, are you an evangelist? If you are, this will excite you. If you are not, can I suggest thinking of some friends of yours? and just saying to them, come and see. And then leave them to Jesus, who knows them better than they know themselves, who has exactly the right answers for them, who knows where they hurt, who knows how to heal it, who knows all their questions, who knows what they need before they even ask it. If you are an evangelist, why don't you just invite lots and lots and lots and lots of people? And by that, I mean invite them to Alpha which is starting on Wednesday the 18th. What we want to do is fill it. It's so much more fun with people who don't believe. If you do believe, we just go through it and go, whatever. Uh, And then we get to the day away and we experience the Holy Spirit and then your life changes. Great. But for everyone else, it's more interesting. It's more fun when you can see people go through the process of Jesus meeting them. Of him changing them birthing in them something completely new. So, what we should do is worship Jesus for a second, and then um, I'd love to um, pray for people. So, should we stand? Uh, We'll need to pick up kids in a minute, but not quite yet. We'll sing this song. What I want you to do is um, just worship Jesus, nothing else. Just worship Jesus for a moment. In doing that, allow him to meet with you to refresh your soul. And then we'll pray for people in a minute.